Podcast. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westcott demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or Whatever Movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother. Fidelio. And today we're talking a movie I should not be discussing with my older brother from 1999, available currently on HBO Max, Eyes Wide Shut. Stanley Kubrick's final movie. His valediction, the last in his oeuvre. This movie is classified, and I'm sure you'll agree, as an erotic thriller, right? I think that's pretty accurate. But to suggest that this movie is sexy, I think is like saying this is a Christmas movie. <laughs> it is surprisingly unsexy and almost, other than the outrageous orgy scene, surprisingly devoid of sex. Because obviously when Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman signed on and they knew that it was an erotic thriller, there was all kinds of speculation. Uh, there was talk about Tom Cruise full frontal nudity and stuff. And everyone's like, what's it going to be? And Stanley Kubrick is all no holds barred and stuff. But what we got, at least from Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, maybe not Nicole Kidman, was relatively tame. I mean, the most naked he gets, Tom Cruise anyway, is that scene in the mirror, which was all of, what, 10 seconds? In the I guess mirror. It was oh, after the party. Yeah. And reports suggested that Stanley Kubrick's original conception was he wanted to get a major star, like an A-list star, butt naked on screen. And I guess in a way he got that for Nicole Kidman. Yeah, he definitely succeeds with Nicole Kidman. She's naked within the first, what, 10 seconds? Yeah, and then with that flashback pretty much consistently throughout. Oh, the uh, the sex with the naval officer flashback. Yeah. Uh, some people regard this as the collapse of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's marriage. Obviously, he mm. wanted them for, because of their real-life marriage, he originally wanted Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger, and that turned out bad regardless. But he did all the weird tricks that he did to Shelley Duvall instead of The Shining, allegedly, and they went to real counseling and talked about stuff, and then he, like, put some of that stuff in the movie to mess with them. Uh, that scene with the naval officer, was it took, like, three or four days of, like, constant simulated sex, and Tom Cruise wasn't allowed anywhere near the set. And like Ooh. wasn't and like she he forbade her to talk to him about it whatsoever. Kubrick forbade Kidman from talking about the sex scene with Tom Cruise. Right. <laughs> Weird. So you're saying that Kubrick was messing with them. There's psychological stuff that was happening for sure. And he made it weirdly personal. Bill and Alice's apartment is modeled after Stanley Kubrick's apartment exactly down to the artwork on the wall. There's a lot of weird stuff, like weirdly personal stuff happening for the talent behind the scenes. I think that happens at the end of a filmmaker's career. I mean, nothing gets more personal than, for example, The Fablemans. Yeah. Could Kubrick have been simply exercising his own sexual and film filmographic demons? Maybe. But I mean, if this is the thing that does it for Stanley Kubrick, then that's... I mean, he died not long after this, but it, it might have been time to examine that, buddy. It sounds like you're pretty knowledgeable about this film. How much Kubrick baggage do you bring to Eyes Wide Shut? Like his person, well, his notoriety, 
is is a big thing. Uh, Tom Cruise says he didn't enjoy playing the Bill Harford character, but that he would have kicked himself if, if he had refused. And in the, the special features for the DVD, which I remember watching 20 years ago, both Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman interviewed separately. When the subject of Kubrick's death would come up, they both immediately teared up. So hmm. if if not, you know, like a personal affection for the guy, they were at least emotionally invested in him and in this project. It was very important to them at the time. And I guess it would have to be because this is the longest film shoot in film history. It's what? in the How long? Guinness Book of World Records at 15 months. And at one point, going <gasps> almost a year uh, of continual shooting, day after day after day, uninterrupted. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Their kids were in England, and they were little, and uh, they developed English accents. Um, so he comes with his notoriety, and everybody jumps on board. They either jump on board because they're like, Stanley Kubrick is doing a movie. I have to be involved in that. Or he asked a bunch of his friends and fellow, you know, previous co-workers, and they were like, I don't want to do it because it's a Stanley Kubrick movie, and you'll excuse me if I don't want to be tied up for two years. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, this film has his stamp all over it, but it had been gestating since 1971 when it was first announced he was going to adapt the novel, which translates to dream story. And then we got it, what, 18 or like, I don't know how many years later, 1999. It was announced in 71 and then released in 99. That's my understanding. So almost 30 years and also yeah. just two or so years before Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise split up. Yep. But I mean, you know, it was filming in 1996 in like the summer, I think, and still was st still filming. There were still reshoots being done in 1998. Wow. So it's hard. Wild. Like, this is it's like Elvis going in the military. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are just off the grid because they were contractually forbidden from from taking other projects until Stanley Kubrick released them from Eyes Wide Shut. <gasps> I'm sure that changed the game in terms of actors' engagements. Musta. You gotta put a cap on that. This film changed a bunch of people's lives. Like who else? Stanley Kubrick made it his final film. This is his swan song. Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, it, it, you know, not long after this, he made Magnolia and things, and that was his art house period. Vanilla Sky, which was strange and surreal and introspective. Uh, this is his mask period, because after this he did Mission Impossible 2, where you have the, the identity-changing masks, <laughs> and he did... And like Top Gun is a mask movie, I guess. Vanilla Sky <laughs> is a mask movie. And then uh, Minority Report. How Vanilla Sky? How is Vanilla Sky a mask movie? How is it? He he has the, the facial, pro the, the regenerative facial prosthetic. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And then Minority Report, he does that trick where he shoots himself in the chin with that thing that morphs his face. So he's wearing, he's concealing his identity. <laughs> That's a lot of masks movies. Yeah. I don't know why that um, he approaches the underground sex club thing and doesn't put on his mask until after. Is it after he enters the gates or after right. he enters yeah, I would, the house? I would be wearing it in the cab. <laughs> I get, exactly. Before you approach the gates, nobody should see your face. Not that it mattered necessarily, but uh, this most notably is the start for your boy, Nick Nightingale. How is Todd Field, the director of Tar, my boy? I don't know. But we talked about Tar, and this was the set where he says that Tom Cruise, he talked to him about, you know, what he wanted to do moving forward. And Tom Cruise absolutely encouraged him to be a director. Wow, that's cool. And then uh, within a year or two, he had In the Bedroom, 
which starred Tom Cruise's brother. So if you were to have a fantasy or a nightmare, I guess, depending on, on how you look at it, about your loved one having an affair, would it be hardcore sex or would it be the whole narrative? What's the question? You know, killer style, like she's taking off her dress now. Yeah. Let me what? go. <laughs> but that's not the kill. You said killer style. And I was like, wait, what? What is the question, please? Okay, what I'm trying to understand here is the film plays a lot with what men perceive women's sexuality to be. And is Tom Cruise's fantasy of Nicole Kidman with the naval officer accurate? Or would there be more narrative and like foreplay and setup and no, stuff no, no. to it? No, that's he doesn't care about the looks across the room. And I would have given up ever, anything. In his mind, the nightmare undoubtedly that's playing in his mind is some dude having sex with his wife. Okay, so that's accurate. Yeah, I feel bad for Tom Cruise, who wasn't allowed to see or talk about any of those sex scenes his wife was a part of, who then had to watch this movie and randomly just interspersed like, boom, his wife having sex with someone else. And like, that must have been a, a tough viewing experience. But okay. no, absolutely a nightmare. And the justification for this character is that that's what set him on this rebellious sort of quest, wandering the streets, ending up in hookers apartments, ending up in a sex cult dungeon or whatever, and ultimately, you know, kind of breaking down and telling her everything about it. And so are men's egos so fragile that they can't even bear the idea of their of their woman, of their wife fantasizing about another man? Look, there was there's two aspects to this movie. And the, I, the basic idea is, is dreaming about infidelity the same thing as acting up on an infidelity or an urge or whatever, right? So Bill goes on his thing, and if he doesn't do hookers by circumstance, he at least smooches hookers and is hanging out with naked hookers and stuff, whereas she didn't engage in anything physically or do anything wrong, but she lusted after the dude and obsessed about him and woke up terrified that he was gone and wasn't sure if it was better that he was gone or that he might still be there or whatever. And then she has an erotic dream. It's that they were on vacation during their best time when she was more fond of him than ever before and then all of a sudden she's obsessing about this dude for days some random dude that she doesn't know and that's not even what i mean is it bad yes it, it drove him a little bit insane that's not what did it for me i was thinking that back in if the barbie movie were made in the you know late 90s tom cruise and nicole kidman would be barbie and ken because i think that they are attractive people but they it's all smooth downstairs there's like nothing going on that suggests hotness to me from either Nicole Kidman or Tom Cruise. Is she beautiful? Sure. Does she look like Barbie or whatever, like all tall with long legs? Absolutely. But to me, she's like the Celine Dion of actresses. She has obvious talent, but there's not a lot of soul in there. Not a lot of like raw attractiveness or or sexuality, I guess. And, and so this movie <laughs> does nothing for me, number one regardless of all her nude stuff and when she mocks him and emasculates him when she's like oh i had that dream and it was horrible and then once you left it was awesome you know and she's like you know you're little little, little tiny peepee or whatever she's saying about the he's te she's teasing him about the girls he was hanging out with <laughs> and she laughs oh my god it just oh i, I it, it makes my skin crawl on dr hartford's behalf Kinda. It's just like the mocking is a 
complete and total turnoff for me. And she, and, and, and I kind of, I think is right. She's looking for a fight or whatever, and she gets stoned and she tries to belittle him while stoned. And there's gotta be something in me just psychologically that that's, it just kills everything. And I wonder if that that's reflected in my view of Nicole Kidman moving forward. Cause this is, you know, 23 years ago at this point. Pretty much at the height of her, of her beauty. I mean, she's and I look Perfect. at her after that, her Oscar you know, roles and, and the hours and stuff, and particularly the last time she really impressed me, which is being the Ricardos. It's all technicality. It's like, wow, in a weird way, she channeled Lucille Ball in a way that I didn't expect. And I was kind of pleasantly shocked and surprised, but it all feels like artifice to me. And okay. Tom Cruise, likewise, he goes through the rigmarole, but never executes any, in, you know, it's almost like he's ready to be rescued when those two girls want to take him to the end of the rainbow. It's like, oh, the doctor wants to, or the guy wants to see me, you know, no problem. See you later, girls. And then he's upstairs with Mandy, the overdosing hooker. And when he finds, because he doesn't do anything. It's like a child's uh, view of what a doctor would be growing up, you know, look in, look in her <laughs> eyes and like do her pulse and then she's fine. Oh, so glad you were there, Bill. I figured he must have done something between scenes. Like he had to have administered some kind of antidote did he have it in his pocket some smelling salts or something but then he could have <laughs> he would have been like hey do you so do you i mean she seems fine keep her here for an hour do you need me because i was about to go to the end of the rainbow over here but nothing <laughs> no he i mean he really enjoyed the game and the hunt and the process but i don't think he ever there was no bite to him there was no resolution for Dr. Harvard, I think ultimately he he wasn't maybe even capable of going there. So you talked about the emasculation of the Harvard character as as Alice, you know, mocks him and belittles him and talks very overtly about her fantasy. Are you missing completely the desexualization of Alice that Harford did to open the conversation to begin with? He hasn't thought twice about her fidelity because he trusts her to be loyal. And he assumes that women don't think sexually, that he knows women better than Alice does. And he knows what a woman is thinking when she's undressed in his doctor's office, which was really funny, by the way, because in almost every scene in the film, Tom Cruise is is sexualized like Lily Sobieski's all up on and Alan Cummings all up on in the in the hotel like he's constantly sexualized almost everywhere he goes except for the scene where he's examining the woman in his doctor's office under the supervision of the nurse that's probably the least sexual scene um, of all although she's unnecessarily sitting there nude like the, <laughs> you don't need to be just hanging out nude in order to use the stethoscope on your heart I'm gonna, anyway, I'm going to argue that we saw Mandy's boobs just as much dead in the morgue as when she was alive. And that was a pretty unsexy naked scene as well. I mean, if you count Mandy overdose boobs, you know, alongside morgue boobs as just being like inert boobs, then yes. But we see a lot of Mandy boob in the orgy scene. And so I, I don't really understand. I understand. I think I understand what you're saying because if he, if he views his wife as desexualized and she, you know, says, well, as a matter of fact, Mr. Smarty man, here's what I, you don't know about me or whatever. And she tells him this unnecessarily elaborate kind of graphic fantasy and, and the dream she had and stuff. It's like, stop talking. And you can see his spirit crushed on his face. 
um, this her her thing sets him on this whole butthurt quest uh, that you know, that he hears about. <laughs> but um, what I don't understand is that they're at this party that they clearly don't want to be at. They're going because his friend invites them, you know, and then one of his I'm assuming one of his best patients or clients. Yeah. And then almost immediately, you know, she's up on with the, the Hungarian dude and he's off with the two girls on his arm going to the end of the rainbow. Like, don't. Well, they both I, enjoy. I think in the constraints of their marriage, they both enjoy the flirtation, the titillation, but they aren't. Neither of them are interested in getting burned. I So they he wouldn't have gone through with it? I don't think so. I think Harfer was all poser. I don't disagree. I, I think you're right. When they get there and they take his pants off, they're going to be annoyed at his can anatomy because I think it's all smooth down there. And plus, he, I think he didn't have to worry about Alice's, you know, fantasies or whatever, because this movie was two and a half hours long and half of it is Nicole Kidman's monologues. Her flirting is like her batteries running down. It takes forever. to, And that guy must have been bored to tears. Uh, he was all. Are you talking about the Hungarian Gentlemen, yeah. he was all into. He was so into it. What are you talking about? He wanted to go take see her. the. Do you want me to go bone you in the bronze sculpture garden? Maybe. Not. Right. Now, oh, so frustrating. <laughs> that was that was really frustrating. It was she, very. She frustrating. did it multiple times, and this movie does a thing where you say a thing like you're like ice cream sundae, and then Bill is like. Ice cream, ice cream Sunday. Sunday. And they just think this constantly. constantly. I'm telling constantly. you, in the edit room, I could shave 45 minutes off of this movie easily. <laughs> just little constantly. edits and covering the covering the edits with the with B-roll and inserts and stuff. Oh. I was beginning to wonder if Dr. Harford had a tick. <laughs> like, seriously, he repeated every line that someone said to him. And I don't know if that was just, you know, he's like a verbal processor or something like that. But I kind of figured either he was stalling because he's not quite as quick and slick as he would like to seem to be. Or he had this weird tick thing yeah. going on because that was driving me bonkers. And look, this is all intentional. Is it like, well, they rushed this movie, so they just kept in long takes and they were like, sorry, when they turned in the film. This is Stanley Kubrick we're talking about. There's legends that a scene of Bill walking through a doorway was 95 takes. The girl from Hocus Pocus, the original hooker who ended up having HIV later, she, I guess she had it at the time. She was supposed to be on set for a couple of days to shoot that scene. It ended up being over two weeks. Nothing is left to chance. It's all intentional, which is a little bit mind-boggling. When she, when the other, when the roommate hooker tells Harper <laughs> that the Hocus Pocus hooker has AIDS, was that intended to, like, erase his boner? I don't know. Because if she knew that her roommate had just gotten the news that she was HIV positive, doesn't know that Bill and Domino didn't do it the night before, and she was all up on, isn't that dangerous? Why was she all up on just to then tell him, I have to tell you she has AIDS or HIV, sorry? I think because Harper's supposed to be irresistible, and she was like, oh, man, this feels really good, but I ultimately can't do it because I know something that you don't. That you were probably HIV positive. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe maybe that's what I'm missing. Because Tom Cruise is so sexless to me and he was like going to get naked with Nicole Kidman. And I was like, ew. Like maybe he, his allure is so widespread and <laughs> I just missed it. Because some of the motivations were really off to me. 
I think I understand when you, what you mean when you say that Tom, Tom Cruise is sexless. He has got charisma up the wazoo. He is so charming. He is so likable. But I, I'm afraid it's what I know about his personal life that makes him feel like a little bit less of a person with just natural tendencies and he's very programmed. Maybe. So does the lust for Tom Cruise apply to the party as well? Because he was like, when he gets caught... And it's obviously, they were like, well, he got in here against, you know, our policy or whatever, and he doesn't belong. So take off your clothes, please. Like, if it wasn't a story, if it wasn't to scare the bejesus out of him, if it's true that Mandy would have overdosed on her own, if it's true that, that Nick Nightingale was on a plane back to, okay, maybe he had a bruise on his face, which, by the way, was the only allusion whatsoever to any violence or murder taking place, the only thing that was kind of confirmed. If all that is true, if it wasn't staged, what, what were they going to do to him? Were they going to sodomize him with, like, the bird beak mask? Like the plague doctor mask? What was the goal? Like if he had been like, all right, I guess I'm disrobing for your enjoyment. What would have happened? Just humiliation? Maybe it was like, yeah, maybe they would simultaneously humiliate him and and also watch him copulate for their their enjoyment. That's what we want, I guess, is what they want is to see Tom Cruise naked like everybody else in this movie. Did you note that once the party turned ugly, all the masks turned ugly? Like, take oh, off your clothes. And, and then we saw all the horrifying masks. <laughs> it's just a matter of perspective. But it was in that moment when he's in the, I don't know what you call that, when he's being questioned, it was at that moment where I kind of realized what Tom Cruise's whole approach to the Dr. Hartford character was. Like, Tom Cruise in this role has nothing if he doesn't have commitment. Like, he approaches every scene by planting two feet on the floor and not moving. Like, he's not maybe not going to go through with it with the hooker, but he's there. Like, he's committed. He did smooch him. He gets he cops a feel. He gets a little smoochy smooch. Even when he's under all of the horrific gazes of the masked orgy people or whatever, he's, you know, he might be scared, but he's, like, fully committed to seeing where this adventure takes him. Even if it threatens his life. Like, that stuff doesn't make him flinch. When someone says, you better get out of here, your life depends on it, don't you kind of at that moment tuck tail and run? I would, but I guess not not Tom Cruise, because he could have <laughs> fought all of them. <laughs> Is that what he's banking on? Because he had some outs, and he chooses to get into trouble. Yeah, I was looking for my moment, too, the whole time, when he's like, take off your mask. I was wondering if that would have been the time to break and run. Like, are they prepared to full-scale murder him? I don't know. Like, I can see the humiliation or whatever. But, yeah, it's all intentional. I don't know. Is this a religious ritual? Are they... What's all the chanting? What's all the, the incense? Uh, what's with the costumes? Did nobody else go to Rainbow Costumes and get a mask there? He's like, oh, you need a mask, huh? And a cloak, huh? But where did everybody else get their masks? Uh, very deliberate, like I said, by Kubrick. Do you know at one point in The Shining, the typewriter changes color inexplicably? It's never addressed. And that's never something that he would have left to chance. It was very deliberate. Once he's encircled and he's under the spotlight, his cloak is not black, which they specified to, he specified to Millich a number of times. It is now blue and everybody else is in a black cloak surrounding him. He's very much under the microscope. And it's, it's all intentional. Weird. 
But it was it's all atmospheric and it's all Stanley Kubrick to execute this party, which was kind of about sex, but was kind of the least sexual thing ever. Like they were all fully covered and stuff, at least uh, the non-sexual participants or whatever. But yeah, uh, Ebert talked about the orgy scene being the height of the MPA's hypocrisy. Yeah. Saying that making it all chaste and weird Austin Powers type ways like covering up, you know, the the naughty bits or whatever, simultaneously compromise a director's vision while also making what is obviously adult film somehow accessible to an audience that it's not appropriate for. Yeah, I guess. So if people don't know what you're talking about, there were digital characters, uh, whether filmed in post or at the time and just moved over, deliberately inserted uh, to cover the graphic nudity and implied sex, I hope implied sex. And so they're hooded figures and people standing in front of everyone having sex so we can't see everything. But it doesn't, when I think about this movie, I think of, for some reason, I think of the terror of the gate scene in broad daylight where you feel this sense of dread where the car drives up and hands him the threatening letter and stuff. I think of all the awkward exchanges where it's obvious that something's going on beneath the surface. And I, I think almost nothing about the sexy bits of this movie. Everything that's happening in the orgy scene is pretty predictable. It really is just Hartford in this weird way confronting his impotence, like walking around in the in the scene. Like nothing much happens. I mean, I guess like the ultimate sacrifice where Mandy takes his place and stuff in front of the, the council and stuff. But it also sets up what is either the most important question of the story, which is, did the sex cult murder Mandy and Nightingale? Or is that basically the biggest MacGuffin of this story? Yeah, I don't know. The way, if it's presented in the movie, if you're not reading subtextually, that's what happened. It was all to scare you. There's some high profile people things, like a Jeffrey Epstein kind of vibe, and you couldn't be allowed to know anything about this situation, so we scared you appropriately. If we were going to go through all the theatrical rigmarole of, you know, to get our jollies or whatever, then we can certainly have you followed and scare you and freak you out with the mask. Because all that stuff was real. It's not implied or whatever. He was definitely being threatened. They threatened him with the note and then someone took the mask out of his bag, went into his home and placed it on the pillow so that he confessed it all to his wife. I don't think Alice was involved. So if nothing else, there was definitely some shady stuff going on, but it is possible because it was Mandy, right? Do you think it was the same girl? A hundred percent. Okay, so there we go. So that's at least something substantial. She's known for her drug use. It is then entirely plausible that she would have overdosed after being dropped off, after being railed by a bunch of dudes or whatever. Maybe that was her thing. But she played that role pretty convincingly. Oh, the role of the martyr? Yeah. And the sacrifice? Why punch Nick and then put him on a safe plane, happy back to his family? I'm not exactly sure. But if we're looking at this movie for the way the movie presents it, it was all a ruse. And they scared him enough so that he explained to his wife, what's this movie about? She has a sex dream. It pisses him off. It sends him off where he tries to be as as unfaithful as a totally vanilla Ken doll can be. And then he comes home and cries about it. Is what this movie, <laughs> what was going on with the sex club? I don't know. People are depraved all over the place. He comes home. <laughs> he comes home and he cries about it. And then they go Christmas shopping. This movie is about the endurance of marriage and of monogamy and how horrible people 
are and can be to each other. I mean, for any man who's listening, their partner has sexual fantasies about other men. Is that going to send every man into a crazed spiral? I cannot justify any of the things he did from top to bottom, but is what he is doing equally as bad? And it was for sure. And, and he deserved to be all broken down at the end or whatever. And for some reason, that turned her on. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I don't know that this movie is co- cohesive, but it definitely made me think about the complex characters. And Harper being probably the most complex, like in his naivete, in his impotence, in, his, in, in the fragility of his ego and masculinity, and yet him being so masculine and so kind of overtly sexual, like... And probably the most interesting thing to analyze in this film, which is kind of sexist for me, because, I mean, Alice is probably equally psychologically interesting, but she just doesn't. She's just very inactive. I think that if you're not a fan of Stanley Kubrick and if his fame doesn't precede him and what kind of baggage Stanley Kubrick, what does he bring to this movie? It's a, the answer is a lot. It should be a lot. Remember, it as his final film. And if you're not on that bandwagon, I can see how this movie would kind of suck and certainly be monotonous and certainly be an hour too long easily. But it definitely has appeal. It's staged beautifully. It's all his films feel haunted to me and in a in a Mulholland Drive kind of way even broad daylight scenes have this menace that is just terrifying and I felt his peril and his drama and in a weird way this this dreamlike storytelling is really effective for me I've seen this movie a number of times and I think every time I watch it I have to watch it because I don't remember what happens like I don't remember (laughs) how he gets out of the mansion alive I don't remember what happens in the end because I think because I can't trust it because some of it doesn't quite line up I feel suspicion that it's not all a ruse it's not a neat package like what's his nut says it is that is just to scare you and nothing's nobody got murdered Nick's fine he's on his way to Seattle would see his wife and four kids or whatever i don't trust it and so i don't really remember it but i look back on this movie fondly for all the weirdness it contained it's like him being like i'm gonna make the dirtiest movie ever and show tom cruise full frontal nudity and then at best we get like torso nudity and rated our digital insertions to cover up the implied sex it's supposed to be movie coitus interruptus i think the entire time leaving you oddly Kind of unsatisfied. The least sexy, sexy movie ever put to screen. And I'm kind of, in a weird way, okay with that. Well, I'm okay with that because it makes it a little easier to discuss with my older brother on or yeah, whatever movies. That. And your final rating is? I give it an all right. I give Eyes Wide Shut a good because despite it being long and languid, there was more than enough for me to explore in the context of their monogamy and their marriage. So... So I think it was it was worth the time invested and in. I'd probably revisit it again. So that's our discussion on Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick's final film, which was released in 1999 and is available on HBO Max. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out a number of other Tom Cruise related reviews available at orwhatevermovies.com or wherever you get podcasts. And hit us up. 818-835-0473 is our hotline. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. 
I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big on this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Electric acid.